So, Ryan, do you have a witty opener to introduce this week's episode of Quarantine Comics? I don't, Roman, because this week the discussion is going to be on the heavy side. That's probably a good call. I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes that aren't really that funny anyway. This week, we're going to be talking about two comics by the Korean graphic novelist Kumsuk Gendry Kim. The first is Grass from 2017, which tells the real-life account of Lee Yuk-sun, who, as a young girl during World War II, was abducted and forced into sexual slavery, a so-called comfort woman for Japanese soldiers. And the second book, which will be released in October, is The Waiting, about a family that came apart when North and South Korea split. Oof. You sure know how to pick them, Ryan. Ryan? So my five-year-old is upstairs and acting a little bit scared. I think I'm going to have to drop out of this recording, (sighs) which really sucks because this book kept me up, really moved me, and had me upset in a good way. Roman, I'm bummed to hear it, but uh, you know what? Go upstairs and take care of your daughter. Give her a glass of whiskey. I'm sure it'll quiet her right down. And uh, fortunately, we have a co-host this week, Jay Wan Edward Chung, a professor of Korean studies at Rutgers University. Jay, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. What's your area of focus at at Rutgers? Korean studies feels kind of broad. Yeah, so I I teach Korean literature and culture at Rutgers. My research is focusing on post-war South Korean literature and visual culture. But at Rutgers, I also teach some pre-modern material as well. And actually, as it, as it turns out, I've recently started assigning webtoons to for some of my courses, uh, which are really popular in South Korea, which is, I guess, somewhat related to what we're going to talk about today. What's your history with, with comics? Were you like a big you know, Marvel DC guy growing up? I actually wasn't. I was always aware of the comic book um, culture, but I didn't really partake at the level of intensity that I think you did and, and that Roman did. But, you know, but I, I do enjoy graphic novels. I, I somewhat shamefully have to admit that I entered into them like the post, post-gentrification post stage, like when people started kind of talking about graphic novel as a serious, mature, artistic form. But, you know, I, I like my Tomine, you know, Chris Ware, Daniel Klaus. But whenever I end up getting into a conversation about comics, I feel somewhat intimidated because I feel like people are really intense about them and people really know their stuff, right? And I certainly do not know my stuff when it comes to, comes to comics. But having said that, I think that it is a vibrant medium across all sorts of different kinds of platform in in South Korea. So I do want to kind of weigh in on this conversation. So speaking yeah. of South Korean comics, let's just, just yeah. get to it. Both of the books that we're going to talk about today, they deal with subjects that are both similar, but also very, very different. So let's just start off with Grass, which was yeah. nominated for an Eisner in 2020. And, you know, maybe the first question shouldn't be whether we enjoyed the book or not. That seems sort of like the wrong question to ask about something like this. But maybe, I guess, what what was your your immediate response when when you'd finished it, Jay? I thought it was powerful. I thought it was extremely important to have something like this translated into English because, you know, there is an ongoing debate and controversy regarding the legacy of the comfort woman that I think a lot of American readers are, are probably not aware of. But having said that, you know, if you've been paying attention to the news and, you know, different ways in which the legacy of different World War two traumas still play a factor politically. You know, there's been debates recently, in the past year even, coming out of Harvard University, there was a professor 
Jean-Marc Ramsey, who, who published an article that tried to make this argument that comfort women were actually voluntary prostitutes, that they were actually acting as free rational agents, right, rather than people who were um, enslaved sexually, right, which, of course, became kind of a discursive ammunition by, you know, it became mobilized by the Japanese conservatives um, and, and, and factions who are like-minded who who tried to use that as, as, as a kind of argument against Korea and an experience and suffering that women went through, right? These women went through. That's such a weird argument to make, though. And yeah. I guess maybe after reading Grass, which is based off of a firsthand account of right. a, a so-called comfort woman that you could say that it was voluntary. Is that something that somebody says just to get attention for themselves, for their own academic work? Or is there, I mean, is that something that he might actually believe? You know, it's, it's, it is, it's a complicated issue. I think there's political motivation to push that agenda, but there's also professional motivation, professional benefit to come from kind of towing that line, right? So just to kind of bring it back to the, the artwork itself, I think just as you're saying, Ryan, what's, what's I think unique and important and compelling about this story is that by focusing on the oral testimony and the embodied memory of that trauma, rather than this kind of, you know, discourse of polemics and also even academic discourse, it brings a very important understanding to the suffering of, you know, these, these women who uh, were sexually enslaved. I was actually thinking about the framing that she has with this. There's a large portion of it with a woman. I mean, presumably that's that's Kumsuk Gendry Kim yeah. uh, interviewing Granny. And so there's this kind of modern frame that sort of wraps around it. Yeah, that actually yeah. kind of goes into her own conflicts with, you know, it takes her a while to get to get Granny to, to open up to her yeah. um, or, to, yeah. or to at least not say the same thing over and over again, because Granny is definitely a yeah. very, she has very strong opinions, obviously about what happened to her, but about the way... The right. governments, the, both the Korean and the Japanese governments, reacted afterwards, and that creates a barrier for Kumsuk Gendry Kim to get any information out of her because she keeps hammering away on this, on this, on a more political agenda before she actually starts saying, "This is what happened to me." But that seems to, I think, emphasizes that this really happened, that that this is reported. This isn't something that was made up. Yeah. Another thing I would add is that it's really real about the subjectiveness in some ways of that encounter too, right? From the perspective of our generation. Well, I I guess she's not exactly our generation, but the generation that did not necessarily live through that trauma. So, you know, there's, there are things being lost, right? In that transmission process. So I, I think what I like about the narrative is that it's quite forthcoming about that kind of awkwardness of retrieval process. And it doesn't try to elide that. And I think that's, you know, I brought up earlier academic works that try to kind of revise history or try to represent what they think is an objective narrative. In fact, you know, often it's not objective at all. Often it's actually intentionally misleading. This narrative actually foregrounds a subjective aspect of this kind of encounter. And there's also intimacy there too, right? So there's awkwardness and there's like the problem of not being able to recover things, but there's also a certain kind of intimacy that comes out of spontaneous moments of like laughter and jokes and and things like that, that I think the narrative is really good about bringing out. Gendry Kim's actually really good about this also with with the waiting, because that also has a frame, a much different, a frame that works in a much different way, I think, than the one in Grass. But in Grass, yeah, you see the tension as... As Gendry Kim is, she's not sure if she 
if she's really should get these women to try to talk about what happened to them in the past, because as she says, this narrative has been said before, you know, am I just dredging up past traumas? But you know, you also kind of see this rapport that she has with Granny and you, you actually see what is what in the firecracker Granny is, you know, how opinionated she is, but also sure. how she is sort of self deprecating, how she tells these little jokes. Certainly, you know, you talked about the rapport. I also think the way in which the the artist conveys the kind of the body language of the characters across both grass and the waiting is really striking. There's a lot of focus on um, intimacy uh, between women. I think it's also really important that we point out that these are stories primarily of women. So it's not just simply stories of trauma, but they're women, you know, interpersonal relationships of between women across generations, sometimes within the same generation. But yes, it's women's relationships that's foregrounded. And a lot of it has to do with how they like inhabit the same room. You actually get a pretty vivid sense of how these women move, right? And inhabit their own spaces. And I thought that was actually quite powerful. And I think that's an important aspect of, of how we remember the experiences that these women went through. I actually noticed that a lot more in, I don't want to move away from grass quite yet, but I actually sure, noticed sure. that a lot more in, in, in the waiting, yeah. just with the mother in that yeah. book, you know, kind of her troubles, like just standing up or her difficulties answering sure. the phone, yes. which is something that gets yeah. dramatized often over the course of an entire page. And I thought that yes, was actually yes. really, a really interesting decision, which, you know, I, 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 that, I guess that's there a little bit in, in grass, but yeah, I kind of feel like with the grass, you know, uh -huh. The Waiting is a fictionalized account of real stories and she's kind of putting it together in a fictionalized account. Grass is, I think she's much more conscientious of being as faithful as she can be to these women's accounts. I'm assuming that there was probably less leeway to dramatize things that she didn't see or, yes. you know, to try yes. to take things. You know, there's a risk of taking things out of context. So on the one hand, you have this responsibility of fidelity, right? Being being true to the things that she heard from from uh, Yoksun, right, from the granny. But, you know, there there's a lot of kind of leeway aesthetically and stylistically that I think that Gendry Kim is able to give herself. And it shows in the kinds of styles that she deploys, right? So you have in certain panels, very naturalistic descriptions of landscape and grass. And then there are certain panels that almost mimic classical Chinese paintings, right? Traditional style landscapes using ink and things like that. And then there are also depictions of little children that are very idyllic, that remind you of folksy caricatures of innocent looking children playing. Mm. And then, you know, juxtaposed with these like horrendous depictions of, of you know, violence by soldiers, you know, it's just like to give you a sense of what's, what's, what's coming, right? And what happened. Yeah, so I think, interesting. yeah, that whole range, I th thought was quite, quite just masterful that she was able to kind of deploy them in a very strategic way to really elicit strong reactions from the readers. The earlier pages, the way the children are depicted is very cartoony. There's always kind of like this big gap tooth smile on her face. Yeah. And then you turn the page and then you see what's happening with Japan making a tear through Asia. She actually spends a few pages depicting the rape of, of Nanking and those panels are pretty graphic and yes. also, you know, very, very deeply swathed in, in shadow. The, the characters look very realistic, much more so than, you know, than they had in, in previously in the more pastoral scenes. Yes. We have to talk about the sexual violence 
uh, that happens in this book. A lot of what happened, I was cringing. Even aside from the rapes, it's almost like the aftermath. And, uh-huh. you know, for instance, the fact that she has the same minstrel rag, right? That she has to use yeah. over and over again. Right. That's what she's forced to do. It's it's queasy. And yet at the same time, you know, like visually the book, you can, if you just flip through the book, there's absolutely nothing offensive visually in the book. Right. It actually is very, very tame. It's all in kind of the like the descriptions and the negative space. She uses negative space, yes. black space to such powerful effect. So when violent things do happen, it happens in these big black spaces. Yeah. And then you have like one or two sentences that really kind of uh, punctuate the horror that that she's experiencing. I'm just thinking in particular of the description of when the Soviet soldiers come in and then the brutal rapes that happen and how different that section was compared to um, the other descriptions of sexual violence. That only spans, I think, four pages or so. And and what you only really see kind of silhouettes or outlines of soldiers. They're not even, they're basically featureless. And then there's like a whole spread of kind of like blots, ink blots that vaguely yeah. resemble, right? Res- vaguely resemble human shapes. And then they kind of disappear, right? Um, in, in words, it's described what, what the Soviet soldiers did. And, and to, to me, like what that signaled was that, you know, not all these acts of violences are remembered in the same way. Like certain things receive attention and certain things are just elided because they don't conform to a certain narrative, right? What do you mean by that? I don't want to really put words in the mouth of, of the storyteller. I don't necessarily know this is what she intended. But my reading of it was that there are different kinds of sexual violence, right, throughout. And, and they're remembered differently because, you know, the Soviets were not the Japanese. So uh, those violences happened and then, and then, you know, they're real. They're just as real. But they do not, in some ways, receive the same kind of attention in the national collective memory as, mm. as the other kinds of violence. But I think it seems like what the, what the narrative is saying is that we, we, we must try to remember what happened, right? And you actually see that come out a little bit in the waiting as well. There's a scene, yeah. there's a scene where a character is presumably raped by a Russian soldier. So you can see that this is an issue that that Tandri Kim is interested in kind of making sure that people are aware of. I'm looking at the pages right now. It's only a paragraph of what the Soviet soldiers did, but then it's sort of like one, two, three, three pages of these disembodied figures right. that slowly start to, to fizzle out. Like the ink right. gets sort of blotchy. It's almost sort of like looking at figures through static. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, though, it's sort of similar to how she depicts the Japanese rapists. And, you know, make the point over and over again that, that they were all the same. You know, they might have had different personalities, but at sure. the end of the day, they were all the same. And the way she depicts them, always leering or faceless. Sometimes they, sometimes you don't even see their expressions. Yes. I think, you know, for some readers that her insistence that they were all the same will be will be particularly impactful because... There's been some kind of revisionist narratives about the relationships between comfort women and and some of the soldiers. And at least some of them, my understanding is that seem to be fact, factually based. But then so the, the idea is that, you know, some argue that there were there were forms of intimacy, like actual genuine forms of intimacy that emerged out of these encounters. And for obvious reasons, some find that to be extremely offensive and repugnant. And others argue that, well, you know. Just because there were moments of intimacy does not 
necessarily excuse what the Japanese government did, right? And what what the rapists did, right? So then it, perhaps it's it's up to us to be able to take all of these kind of entanglements into account as we think back to history, rather, rather than trying to kind of simplify it into a certain kind of mannequin narrative of good versus evil, right? So I think that she's entering into that conversation with her own perspective yeah. by saying that to those who think that some of these men were tender, she's offering like some vision of tenderness, but then flipping it and saying, it, well, actually, even, even those moments of tenderness were actually fake. Not they were not sincere at all, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure Gendry Kim's yeah. full motivation for writing this book when she yeah. did, but it does feel like what you just described. It could be like a repudiation of right. those of those rewritten historical accounts. And I'm right. thinking in particular, there's that moment when one woman is given a watch. Yes. Oh no, that was that was that was Granny, right? Um, yeah, it, she was she was given a, a watch and that's right, that's right. The soldier says, Ah, I will come back for yes. you. When I come back for this watch, I will come <laughs> back for you. Yes. And then he sends a fucking friend like uh, after a while, like over to to, to get the watch. He's like, hey, I need the he needs the watch back. And yes. that's it. And it's sort of that's like it. that's the moment of that's the moment of tenderness. That is that is right. the extent of right. what she gets. Right. And you know, even I just want to point out, like, even afterward. The war is over. And I think both the waiting and grass kind of emphasize this. Like even when the the war is ostensibly over, it's just more bullshit afterwards. She finds a guy who was working with the Jap the Korean man who was working with the Japanese, but who was kind to her when she was when she was imprisoned. Yeah. And she marries him. Right. And then he decides to join the the army and <laughs> then come to find ten years she waits for him ten years, right. taking care of his family while he's away right. in the army, and then he she and then finally, by happenstance, her uncle runs into him. Right, right. And only to find out, oh yeah, actually he uh, he remarried. Just thought that she'd move on too. Yeah. And it's gut wrenching when that happens because of of all that she'd been through. Her idea of what a, a real relationship is, what a healthy relationship is, has been so skewed by everything that she's been through. And this is like the closest she's had to this real relationship, only to have it deteriorate into nothing because this guy was a douchebag. Yeah. I wanted to get your take on something also before we move on to to the waiting, which is the term comfort woman. And the introduction of, the, of this book says the term comfort woman is widely used to refer to the victims of Japanese military sexual slavery, a direct translation of the Japanese euphemism for prostitute. The term continues to be controversial, especially among survivors in the countries from which they were taken, since it reflects only the perspective of the Japanese military and distorts the victim's experiences. And then right. they give a reason for continuing to use the term comfort women in this book, in this translation. Yes. I just, I just wanted to get your take on it because even though this is a book from the perspective of the women who were raped, they still, they still use a term that's kind of defined by the Japanese soldiers, by the Japanese government. In a way, it's almost like giving power back to the Japanese, but maybe there's no other term that, that could be used. Yes, I don't really necessarily know if I have a position regarding this. You know, if I'm just thinking about how I would teach it, and I, you know, I, I, I do teach this issue in my class, and I, I still use the word comfort women, but of course I explain, you know, where that comes from and the problem associated with the term. I don't necessarily see a problem right now where we are today in terms of using that word uh, as a terminological convenience as long as it's explained properly and it's contextualized mm -hmm. properly, but I can see there may come a time where it is no longer okay to do so. These things are 
constantly changing, as, as you probably know. But I think it's really important to listen to the, the survivors and hear what they have to say and take that into account as we remember what had happened to them. I, I'll also just add another thing, which is that there is a certain you know narrative about comfort women that we hear that you know it, it, it was shameful to talk about talk about what had happened. I mean, it's not really until the '90s that um, it kind of came to the fore, right? As something that needs that's to be actually addressed. a big thing. We we didn't talk about that, but that's a big thread in in grass. A lot of women right. can't go home because they were forced into sexual slavery. Right. They were right. They, were, they worked as comfort women. Yes, and I, I focus on the 1950s in my own research. And one of the things that I noticed when I was um, when I was doing my own research is that the word comfort woman is actually used in the 50s too to describe sex workers in you know, in the military camp towns, right? Or, you know, in South Korea, who are servicing American soldiers, which is, of course, not to say that it's the same thing. But there's a kind of a terminological slippage happening, right? Where um, people who lived through the war, the, you know, the, the World War Two, Pacific War, uh, wartime mobilization period, they saw what happened, and they heard about what happened. And then they're seeing continuity between that and, and what they're witnessing on their American occupation and American hegemony, right? So, you know, it's not completely, it wasn't completely elided. I think people were aware of it for a time, but it just wasn't, you know, you know, in American politics, we talk about the Overton window, right? Certain things are allowed to be talked about in public discourse and certain things are just not kosher. And for a time, it was not kosher. Yeah. So, you know, and actually you do raise a good point about the term comfort women. I don't think anyone who reads grass will think that, well, you know, I mean, it might be used as a euphemism, but once you kind of read grass, it's, it very kind of clearly shows how what what that really meant, right? As cozy as the term comfort woman is, we actually see what that what that entails, and mm-hmm. it is it is it is horrific. I want to move on to the waiting because that comic is coming out in October, so that's Kumsuk Entry Kim's newest graphic novel about a family who's split apart. During, during North Korea. I guess we kind of started talking about grass with the frame. And this one also kind of has a modern frame. Unlike yeah. grass, the waiting is fictionalized. She used, I think, real accounts to kind of inform the narrative. It actually begins with this relationship between this mother and the daughter. The mother having fled North Korea when she was a young woman, and now she wants her daughter to find the son that she lost. And so there's this dramatic frame that wraps around the waiting Unlike Grass, which is an interview. And this one actually kind of like functions a little bit differently. It almost felt like, I mean, in a way, it's about abandonment. It's about familial yes. loss. And it kind of begins with this woman saying, I abandoned, I think her first line is like, I abandoned my mother today. She's basically, she's contemplating moving out of Seoul. Yeah. You had a response to the Grass. How about the waiting? You know, because this also dramatizes a really fraught and contentious period in, in Korean history. Yeah. My response to both was similar in a sense that I really took notice of the form that Gendry Kim chose of the, the frame structure, the story within a story. That seemed very deliberate. I think it's very important to her that, again, the kind of the subjectivity of exploring the past is foregrounded, right? I thought in some ways, you know, it worked even better in the waiting in a sense. You know, as you said, Ryan, that idea of abandonment, this idea of isolation and separation 
is something that afflicts us today, as we all know from the pandemic and the lockdown and not being able to see our loved ones for a long time, right, in person, there are like devastating psychological and, and yeah, psychological consequences to that, right? So some might say like, oh, there isn't much connection between that kind of situation and what these separated families are going through. The kind of distance and separation between the mother and the, and the novelist, the main character um, in, in The Waiting, and the separation between the divided families, there's a kind of a symmetry there that I think, yeah, I think the artist is asking us to think through. You know, going back to Grass, the Granny actually does get reunited with her family, and it's, she's really disappointed by them, which I thought was yes. really, really interesting. Yes. She's like, they just argue they have cut different interpretations of how she got sent away in the first place yes. you know she her interpretation is like mom gave me up and you know the, the her siblings interpretation is no that's not that's not what happened she loved you and so even when she's reunited with her family there's she's still isolated right i mean her experiences yes. essentially isolate her because it's not something that her family can relate to it's not yes. something that they really seem to want to talk about and in this one of course it's it's actually, there's still that distance between the daughter. She's impatient with the mother. I mean, as do- actually, I thought that was actually something that felt really real to me. That sort of mother-daughter yeah. relationship. The daughter's like, why is why does she always mute her phone? Why is she always like this? You know, there's this, there's a sense of duty and a sense of frustration there. And I actually really like that about, you know, I mean, obviously, that's not something that Kumsuk Gendry Kim could put in grass, because it probably didn't exist, but it's something that she had the power to fictionalize in the waiting. And I thought that actually kind yeah. of made a really kind of power, made the frame a lot more powerful, a lot more resonant because she was able to tie what happens in the present day emotionally to what happened in the past. And yeah. when you see the full effect of what happened in the past, the loss of her family, of, of her mother's family, that kind of makes what happened in the present so much more, more resonant. I would just add that I think there is something like low key, not political, but something that's being said about the socioeconomic conditions of contemporary South Korea. You know, mm. she's 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 an artist. She's you know living precariously, trying to probably you know make ends meet by you know working on freelance assignments and things like that. And she has to move. She has to leave Seoul, right, because she can't afford rent, basically, right. Um, and and there's a certain kind of cruelty in you know the relationship between the landlord, a certain kind of anonymity. So the yeah. the, the house that she's living in gets sold, and she doesn't even know about it. And then the landlord, you know, the new landlord comes in and like demands rent and things like that. So you know, that kind of kind of coldness, calculation, cruelty that we associate with capitalism, I think in some ways is like replaced you know, the political violence and the, polit- the political kind of demarcations that, that were linking with the Cold Air, the Cold War in the earlier part of the narrative and, and, and the waiting. So I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to be too heavy handed about that, but I think there's a kind of underlying message about that as well. In both books, there's that, there's also an acknowledgement of how, how women are commonly situated in, I guess, the Korean right. familial hierarchy. In Grass, she wants to go to school. No, you can't go to school. Her father says, man, if you were born a boy... But yes. you're born a girl and that is your lot. And, you know, you yeah. see that also in The Waiting where the daughter is sort of funding. She's funding her mother, which is her sense, you know, sense of duty and all that sort of stuff. But it also seems like she's funding her her older half-brother, 
which is, you know, you're kind of like, okay, you know, because all of the money she gives to her mom also goes to her brother. She doesn't really linger on that, but she's definitely nodding to, I think, some of these inequalities based on gender. I agree. The big thing in the waiting is the fleeing from North Korea to South Korea. Yes. One thing that really struck me here is how sudden it was, how quick the upheaval happened. It's like they're visiting grandma to show the her her new grandkid and then suddenly there's like a flood of refugees outside of the house and it's like oh you gotta go too and as they journey the journey is freaking horrible um people are dying american jets are shooting at them for like no ostensible reason and as they go on she starts to lose members of her family she loses track of her in-laws and then there's that huge moment where she's nursing and changing her daughter and she leaves her husband and her son for just a minute and she can she never sees them again and there's this really i think this pan these two panels that really stick at me where again gendry kim uses negative space so well where you just kind of see this dark and the outline of her husband and her son over and over again just kind of emphasizing this this massive empty space and i guess i was just kind of curious when the schism happened for, for people on the ground was it that that fast was just like suddenly you got to leave so one of the kind of the common narratives that you'll find in memories of of the war is is that people just don't really understand what's happening right when they hear about the war so that kind of like naive confusion about the political geopolitical shifts right especially away from the cities right especially away from where the action is you find that often i mean in some ways it's kind of exaggerated in certain narratives for sometimes comic effect even. And in some, in some ways, sometimes the, the rural folk are being idealized as these innocents that were just completely just ambushed by this, by this historical event, right? This like, sense of confusion and uncertainty was the prevailing sentiment. And even when you knew that there was war, even if that was confirmed, it wasn't necessarily clear what the right thing to do was, right? Who the good guys were, whether you would actually be in harm's way. It was unclear for so many people. And that's precisely why it was so horrifying. When you think about post-war literature, especially literature that tries to reconcile the past, how, where would you say grass and the waiting fit in? I think one of the, I mean, I think we were, I've already kind of emphasized, you know, one of the things that's really important about, I think these two works is, emphasis on uh, the narratives of women, right? And how, you know, it's it's through this interpersonal relationships across generations, uh, whether it's between mother and daughter or whether it's between, you know, a, a graphic novelist and, and, a, and, a, and a comfort woman survivor, right? That the reckoning of this past is happening. And I think that alone deserves our attention because, you know, I don't want to, you know, you don't, I don't necessarily mean to gender everything, but, you know, war is, war is made by men, right? And yeah. sexual violence made by men, right? They're inflicted by men. So gender is a huge part of this, and we can't necessarily elide it. So that's one, one dimension that I would bring into it. And I think another thing that is particularly powerful in these narratives is, is that, and I, I, don't, I think that she's able to do this in a kind of a subtle, elegant way without being kind of, you know, over the top with it, is that she makes this argument that it's not necessarily about South Korea versus North Korea or, you know, Japan versus Korea per se necessarily. Like 
I think there's a kind of argument being made about how these individuals are existing today as uh, kind of living embodiments of that trauma. So like, I think a good, a good example of this is, you know, thinking about national division in Korea today, right? One of the images that you constantly see is that idea of a divided Korea, North versus South, right? It's a very kind of, you know, binary imagination, right? Good versus evil, democratic versus dictatorship, right? Capitalist versus communist. So these are very common conceptions of what's going on in, in Korea today. But what's really powerful about the waiting, for example, is that these divisions exist everywhere. They exist in everyday life across different, all sorts of different kinds of relationships that don't necessarily conform to that idea of North versus South. They exist across friends. They exist within families. There's a really powerful moment in in the waiting where the couple, they decide they're going to search for their, their true partners, right? By wearing those yeah. signs, right? So even, you know, a married couple, right? Who have lived together for years, they recognize that um, their original partners matter more in a sense that that's their original form, right? So they live in a divided way. And it's like, hmm. it's, not just the, it's not just the territory. It's like that division is inside them. And they're, like, their body is an embodiment of that division. Their memories are embodiments of that division. So I think that she has a very emotionally compelling way of making that case that deserves um, our attention. You know, I'm Chinese-American, American-educated. So, you know, my knowledge of the comfort women or, you know, when North Korea split into South Korea is kind of defined by an American perspective. And that's very, very broadly, right? You know of the comfort women, you know, the division between North and South Korea. I think that's probably most embodied by that Seth Rogen, James Franco comedy. Yes. Um, if, if you're American and you think about, you know, everything you know from about Korea probably comes from that or from Team America, Right. So, so in a way, it's it's reduced to caricature. What what these books do, though, is they kind of really dive into how these events or how these these atrocities really impacted individual people, individual families. Not just while it was happening, but even you know, fifty, sixty years after it happened, and the effects are tragic and also very very surprising it's kind of an interesting portrait of how people react to these very strange unnatural occurrences and that's for me what made both books so so memorable they're they're very they're very human i guess amidst a lot of inhumanity the disposability of humans like that was that was so resonant throughout both books i mean the comfort women the way they were treated to you know that scene where the american soldiers in the waiting are just gunning down the line of refugees right i mean these these right. people to everybody else are so completely disposable and you know what kumsa gendry kim does is that she elevates them and dignifies them and shows who they actually were she emphasizes their humanity in a way i think that that has been ignored for so long. Thank you. That's great. I totally agree. Well, Jay, that was a heavy conversation, but thank you so much for, for being a part of it. Thank you for, for also kind of lending your knowledge because I, I you know, this is not an area of, of history that I'm, I, you know, I, I particularly feel comfortable talking about just because I, I'm so ignorant of it. So really appreciate you ha being on the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. I certainly have learned 
actually a great deal from our conversation as well. All right, that's a show. But before we check out, let me conjure up the memory of Roman and ask him, Roman, what are you reading next week? Next week, we are going to bring some sports ball action to Quarantine Comics. And by sports ball, I mean Dragon Hoops, the recent Eisner Award-winning book by acclaimed writer and artist Jean Lun Yang, known for books like American Born Chinese, Superman Smashes the Clan, and even Shang-Chi, which the upcoming Marvel movie is about to be about. Dragon Hoops has Yang, at the time a high school English teacher moonlighting as a comic book writer, documenting his school's mostly Asian basketball team and their march to the California State Championships. You know me, I love my sports ball, and Dragon Hoops is sure to be better than Space Jam, but I'm not sure what that means or if that's saying anything at all. Next week on Quarantine Comics. Do 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 do